Well, good morning, church. Thank you, for Matt, for sharing our scripture reading this morning. We are going to be in Malachi chapter 2 today. We're working our way through the book of Malachi this month, just chapter by chapter. These uh, four chapters that close out our Old Testament and in many ways prepare us for what God was going to bring in the New Testament. We're going to go straight from Malachi into Matthew for our time of Advent and uh, in con- planning to continue through the Gospel of Matthew even next year. And so you can be preparing for that. But Malachi is a hard book. And Malachi records what amount to six distinct disputes between God and his people. There's a lot of question and answer going on in this book that uh, God will ask of the people a question or will make a statement in regard to something that they're doing. And then they will respond back to him, kind of denying it or, or questioning him themselves And then God will make a final statement clarifying the truth of the matter. And there's this back and forth that we see a number of times in uh, the book of Malachi. And in particular today, we're going to look at two of these disputes. We looked at the first two last week. And we're going to pick up that second dispute again today. And then look at the third dispute. And then finally next week, we'll look at the the last three uh, disputes between God and his people. But the the subject of chapter 2 is a word that occurs about six times uh, in this chapter. The subject is one of covenant. We think about the word covenant, and we want to understand that this is a word that really describes uh, in so many ways the fullness of God's relationship with his people, that he has with us a covenant relationship. It means that it is based firmly and fully upon his promises and his faithfulness to his word. So covenant is not based upon our faithfulness to God, but his faithfulness to us. And yet we find that within the covenant, there are stipulations for us. There are calls to obedience And faithfulness on our part. The main problem is we are really poor at keeping the covenant. And so we're going to see that here in Malachi chapter 2 this morning as we talk about covenant breakers, that's us, and the covenant keeper who we'll see is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the one who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves in keeping the covenant between us and God that we might be his redeemed people. So once again, this morning, our key truth as we're working through Malachi. Malachi draws us into six disputes between God and his people. We're going to look at the third of these disputes, six disputes today. These disputes still exist. This is not just something that was happening in the 5th century B.C. This is continues to be a part of the relationship between God and his people. These areas of dispute that we are seeing in this Old Testament book. The first of those disputes found in chapter 1 was a dispute concerning God's love for his people. They asked God, how have you loved us? And God displayed his love through those covenant promises particularly made to that Old Testament patriarch Jacob. The second dispute we're going to pick up again today was a dispute concerning defiled lambs. They had asked God, God, how have you loved us? 
And God said, here's how I've loved you. Now let's ask a question. How have you loved me? Your love for me has been pretty sorry as they had been bringing defiled lambs, as they had been bringing subpar sacrifices to God in their worship in that rebuilt temple. And so God addresses this. What do you think you're doing bringing these sick and lame and blind lambs as sacrifices? You know that the covenant was based upon you bringing a pure sacrifice because it was looking forward to that pure Messiah who was to come. But they were bringing defiled sacrifices. And as we move into chapter 2 here... God is not no longer addressing the people about that matter. Now God is addressing the priests because they were the ones that were bringing the sacrifices before God. They were not stopping the people from bringing those defiled sacrifices. They were participating in that poor, pitiful worship as well. And so he addresses them. And he addresses a covenant that he says was made with Levi. Now, who was Levi? Levi was one of those 12 sons of Jacob. He was the, that was one of the 12 tribes that came from the line of Levi. And the Levites, the, the descendants of Levi, were given charge over the activities in the temple. These were the Old Testament priests came from the line of Levi. And God, in his covenant with Moses, which we call the Mosaic Covenant, God, in his covenant with Moses, had a particular portion of that covenant that he spoke over the descendants of Levi, these Levites, these Old Testament priests who were charged with the rightful worship of God to take place in the temple. We see a portion of it in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 5. And the portion in part of God's covenant with Moses, he said, Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward. For the Lord your God has chosen them. That's covenant language. The Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. Now we're dealing with some disputes here in the book of Malachi. But in Deuteronomy, God's plan and design was that the priests would be those who would be the go-betweens, who would be the intermediaries between God and the people. They would bring the sacrifices. They would teach the people God's ways. They would offer up prayers and petitions on behalf of the people. They were God's chosen people for that temple work. And yet they had failed again and again in what God had given them to do. And so Malachi here in chapter 2 is addressing these priests. And he's addressing them in the matter of having broken the Mosaic Covenant. They were not fulfilling their end of the deal. They were not offering sacrifices that were worthy of the God they were worshiping. They were teaching the people in ways that were not fitting with the word of God. And he addresses them in several matters that we're going to look at just briefly this morning. First of all, they broke the Mosaic Covenant. They broke God's covenant between him and his Old Testament people by not receiving God's word responsibly. Look at verse 2. He says, if you will not listen, O priest, if you will not take it to heart. Notice those words. If you will not take it to heart, take what to heart? 
His instruction, His his word, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. They were hearing the word of God, but they were not practicing the word of God. And by the way, church, let me just say, this is a great danger for us every time we gather in this place. It is a great and grave danger that we would come and hear the word of God, but would not practice what we hear. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, For it is not the hearers of the law who are the righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now he clarifies as he goes on through Romans that we are not justified by our doing the law, but our doing the law, our practicing the word of God stands as a proof that we are justified before God. It is the fruit of our justification and not the root of it. James chapter 1, James reminds us that we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. There is a danger of self-deception every Sunday morning when we come together and hear the word of God. That we think that we are somehow deserving of the favor of God simply because we have come to hear. But the blessing comes in obedience to what we've heard. These priests were hearing the word of God, but they were not responding appropriately. They were not doing what they heard. Secondly, these priests broke the Mosaic covenant by not reverencing God's name rightly. Look at verse 5. They were not reverencing God's name rightly. He says, My covenant with him, with Levi, was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. I gave life and peace to Levi through this covenant. It was a covenant of fear. And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Now we see those terms and we think, those things don't seem to go together. Life and peace, we go, yeah, I like that part. But fear and awe? How do life and peace and fear and awe come together within the same covenants? Rightly understood, these things do align with one another. And I don't have time to get into all of that this morning, but understand in God's covenant, life is found in the fear of God. Peace is to be found in the awe of God. These things are not at odds with one another. They actually produce one another in the life of the believer. And it's all found in this place of of reverencing or fearing God's name rightly. Of recognizing that His name is holy. He is a God who is holy, holy, holy. And as these priests were bringing subpar sacrifices before Him, they were denying by their actions the holiness of God. And we can do the same. As we talked about last week, as we come before God bringing apathetic hearts that don't really care too much for the things of God, as we come before God bringing bitter hearts, harboring unforgiveness toward others, even in the midst of our worship, as we come before God bringing cheating hearts that that are harboring, giving safe harbor to, to secret sin while we would profess fidelity to God, 
we are operating in the same way as these priests were operating and not rightly fearing the name of God. Matthew Henry said nothing profanes the name of God more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to do honor to it. It's exactly what these priests were doing. They were tasked with reverencing the name of God before the people of God, and yet they were leading God's people in these subpar sacrifices and dishonoring his name. But not only that, the priests also broke the covenant by not relaying God's law righteously. They were tasked with teaching people God's ways, and yet they were not faithful to the task. He says in verse 8, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I will make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. He uses that word instruction over and over again, beginning there in verse 6. It's the Hebrew word Torah, which refers primarily to the first five books of the Old Testament, but this 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 covenant of God written down for the people that the priests were given the task of teaching, but they were not teaching it rightly. They were teaching it with partiality, meaning they would tell certain folks certain things and other folks other things, depending upon their status. They would soft sell the harder parts of the word of God to those that didn't want to offend. And by the way, we see the same thing happening in pulpits across our land today. The itching of ears. The saying of what is easy over what is holy. A proclamation of a God who cares more about our happiness than he does about our holiness. There are many false gospels being proclaimed across the landscape today. And right here in Breckenridge County, it is no different. We are not isolated from this, folks. We need to understand the word of God has many hard things to say. And we need to ask Time after time, when we hear the word of God being preached, is that actually the word of God being preached, or is that the opinions of the preacher? Is he saying what God has said, or is he saying what will gain him a hearing? These priests, they were not receiving God's word responsibly. They were not reverencing his name rightly. They were not relaying his law righteously. They were breaking the covenant right and left. But they stand as a reminder of the fact that we have done the same. What it means to be sinners is that we have broken God's covenant. We have not kept His law. We have not honored His name We have not done what He has instructed us to do. And the reality is, not only have we not done it, we could not do it. We could not keep the covenant. We needed one who could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that is why Christ came. 
We look to him this morning and we're reminded that Christ did what we could not do in speaking for God truthfully and in living for God righteously. In word and in deed, he fulfilled the covenant. He said it himself. If we go to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the summation of the Old Testament. The law being those first five books, the prophets being the last of the books of the Old Testament. He's saying from beginning to end the Old Testament. He said, I didn't come to do away with that. I didn't come to do away with the law or the, or the prophets. I had not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To do what you could not do. I have come to be perfectly obedient to the word of God. To speak the fullness of his truth and to live it out before you. Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so we praise God that the covenant has been kept. Not by us, but by our Savior. And this leads us to the third dispute. Again, keep in mind the matter is one of covenant. So the second dispute was one concerning defiled lambs. The third dispute concerned divorced lovers. He moves from his address of the priest to again broadly addressing the people once again. And he moves from addressing what was happening in the temple to what was happening in the home. And he's reminding us again that there is an intimate link between what happens in the place of worship, what we call the church today. There's an intimate link between what happens in the church and what happens in the home. And we want to see that this morning as we look at this covenant of marriage. And by the way, some would deny that marriage is a covenant and they need to go read Malachi chapter 2. Because he is showing us that marriage is not a man-made institution. It is not ultimately something that man has created or that government sustains. That marriage is a covenant given by Almighty God. And it's part of the creation covenant. It predates the Mosaic covenant that he was addressing with these priests. It goes all the way back to God's covenant with Adam. Genesis 2.24 defines biblical marriage. And by the way, the only true marriage is biblical marriage, folks. We need to be reminded of that today. This definition in Genesis 2.24 is the only definition of marriage. Regardless of what our culture is trying to do. Genesis 2.24, therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's marriage, folks. Regardless of what our crazy culture is trying to put forward in front of us day by day by day, this is biblical marriage. This is God's design from the very beginning, even before sin entered into the world. God defined this first of all institutions, the home. And at the heart of the home was not the child, but the marriage. I'm going to come back to that thought. 
Because especially in the church today, we are oftentimes getting this out of order. And I'm going to come back to that. But notice the elements of biblical marriage. First of all, there is a leaving that takes place. There is a man leaving his father and mother, his home of origin. He is departing from what he has known and he is uniting in something new. There's a leaving, and then I like what the old, uh, the, the King James Version says, then there's a cleaving. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. There's a, there's a cleaving, a uniting that takes place in something new. There's a leaving and a cleaving. And then, as I've shared in marriage ceremonies over the years, I think the third element is there's a leaving and a cleaving, and then there's a weaving as God brings the husband and wife together in this one flesh relationship. They are woven together in covenant. And don't miss that. The same thing that God was doing in Genesis chapter 12 when he entered into covenant with Abraham is the same thing that he is doing every time a man and woman come together in marriage. There's a leaving and a cleaving and a being woven together in that one flesh relationship. And this is the plan of God. And yet, just like the day in which we live, There was a breaking of the marriage covenant that was taking place. Toward the end of the book of Nehemiah, we see the historical account of this. What Nehemiah had to deal with in terms of the the breakdown of the home in his day. Malachi is writing in the same period and he's talking about it from God's perspective and what this looks like when we are not honoring the marriage covenant. So how did the people break the marriage covenant. If the covenant of marriage involves a leaving and a cleaving and and a weaving, if you will, if if that's what the marriage covenant is, that's God's definition of marriage, how were they breaking the marriage covenant? Well, look at verse 11. First of all, they were breaking the marriage covenant by getting hitched to unbelieving spouses. By getting hitched to unbelieving spouses spouses he had talked with them about this all the way back in the mosaic covenant in deuteronomy chapter 7 god warned as they went into the land to take possession of it they were going to encounter all kinds of people with different backgrounds and and many different gods that they worshiped and god said to his people in deuteronomy 7 you shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And so understand very clearly here, this issue of intermarriage was not a racial issue. The church has gotten this wrong at times in our history. Understand this was not a racial issue. This was a religious issue. This was an issue of where their hearts would be turned because what God recognized is when I weave together the heart of a man and woman in covenant marriage, that that is going to influence those individuals in dynamic and life-changing ways. And so if my covenant people are uniting with those who do not share the same faith, who do not share the same covenant relationship with me, the likelihood is they will be led 
astray. And you watch this happen in Israel over and over and over again. But it's not just an Old Testament problem, folks. It's a New Testament problem as well. So that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? The implied answer is none. There is no relationship between these things. And yet how often in the church have we neglected this teaching? That would encourage young men and young women as they are seeking a spouse. Not just to look for somebody that's good looking or has a good job. Not to look for somebody who's just funny and has a great personality. Priority number one. And those who are unmarried, please listen to me when I say this to you. Priority number one in seeking a spouse is, are they sharing your covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ? All the rest of the stuff pales in comparison to that. And I know that there are many who could give testimony of having settled for less than that and had to deal with the aftermath. And God is warning us here of the danger. And I know how in the church we practice what's called dating evangelism. Well, I'll just be a really good influence and I'm going to lead that guy that I think is so good looking to the Lord. I've heard so many young ladies have that kind of a mentality and every time it goes the other direction. And God is warning us here. His Old Testament people were intermarrying with the peoples as they returned to the land. They were intermarrying with the other peoples and breaking the covenant. But not only were they breaking the covenant by marrying unbelievers, they were also breaking the covenant by seeking restoration with unrepentant hearts. Look at verse 13. They were seeking restoration with unrepentant hearts. He said, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning. That sounds really holy, doesn't it? I mean, they're down at the altar. They are crying their eyes out. They are groaning before the Lord. Why? Because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, verse 14, another one of those but you say statements, but you say, why does he not? Why is he not accepting our offerings? Because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Again, covenant marriage by God's definition. They were seeking to be restored in their relationship with God and yet continuing to be unrepentant in these unbiblical marriages and the way that they were even treating their own Hebrew wives. It was despicable and God was saying we can't be restored in our relationship while you are remaining unrestored and unrepentant in your horizontal relationships. It's once again a reminder that those things that would stand 
stand between us and one another will ultimately stand between us and God. That's why we must be quick to forgive and seeking the restoration of relationships within the body, lest that be a hindrance to our prayers, but even more so in the home. In the home, as Peter writes about the fact that a man's prayers can be hindered by a lack of forgiveness and and right relationship with his wife. In the same way here, he is reminding the people, your worship is going to be hindered when your marriage is a mess. This is by God's design. But they wanted the restoration without the repentance. And by the way, church, let's be reminded, it can never be. We cannot be brought into a right relationship with God apart from repentance. We cannot cling to our Savior and cling to our sin at the same time. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. God will not be satisfied with that divided heart. There must be a repentance that clings to Christ and Christ alone. But they were unwilling. They were unrepentant. And finally, they broke the marriage covenant in a third way. They broke the marriage covenant by getting divorced for unbiblical reasons. Look at verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, that man covers his garment with violence. He's committing a violent act, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. They were divorcing their wives for unbiblical reasons. For whatever reason they could come up with, they were abandoning, as he calls her here, the wife of your youth. And we need to understand divorce is a hard topic and probably requires a lot more uh, intentionality in in talk than I'm going to be able to give it this morning. But let me just lay out a few basic premises. First of all, there are biblical reasons for the ending of a marriage. There are biblical reasons for the ending of a marriage. Let me show you. There's three. Three biblical reasons why a marriage may end. First of all, 1 Corinthians 7.39 reminds us that marriage may be ended by death. That's why we say in the marriage ceremony, till death do us part. Jesus even said in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be marrying and giving in marriage. This This is an institution given for this life and for this life alone. It's going to be replaced with something better in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll talk about that another time. But 1 Corinthians 7, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Again, that reminder of being not, not being unequally yoked in those last few words there. Only in the Lord. Marriage may be ended by death. Marriage may also be ended by adultery. Jesus in Matthew 19, 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except, notice that word there, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Has broken, again, God's covenant of marriage. Adultery breaks that covenant. And then the one who has 
had adultery committed against him is then free to marry again, but again, only in the Lord. So marriage may be dissolved by death. Marriage may be dissolved by adultery. And marriage may be dissolved by a third cause. Again, 1 Corinthians 7. Talking about a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. And, and the idea here being two unbelievers, that one of them becomes a believer, puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and now they're at odds with one another because they're not sharing the same faith, not sharing the same worldview. And so then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, if the unbelieving partner separates, decides to, to dissolve the marriage, let it be so. If the unbelieving partner, this is an issue of desertion. If the unbelieving partner leaves, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so God gives three basic reasons why a divorce might, or the ending of a marriage might occur biblically. First of all, death. Second of all, adultery. Third of all, desertion. But as we look around the landscape, in a day in which we have what we call no-fault divorce, which, by the way, is an abomination. That is an abomination in the sight of Almighty God that we would have something called no-fault divorce. We make a real clear statement. When there is divorce, there is a fault. And the fault is we have sinned against God. That is not unredeemable. This is not the unforgivable sin. But we, as the people of God, need to stand up in a day when we are watching our homes and our churches falling apart because we have not upheld the covenant. How can we expect a lost and dying world to uphold the covenant of marriage when we are not doing so? This begins in the household of God, folks. We are the ones that have been called to uphold this covenant and to do so with joy. Why? It's because of what the marriage covenant points to. We all need to be reminded marriage points to something much greater than itself. Marriage is not an ending point. It is a signpost that's pointing to something greater. Ultimately, marriage is pointing to the relationship between Christ and His church. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. And when we allow the institution of marriage to be downgraded, when we allow it to be despised and defiled, we are denying the very gospel that we proclaim to love. And so once again, we've been given a covenant that we can't keep. But Christ did. You see, Christ did what we could not do in dying for us sacrificially and rising for us victoriously. Look back at verse 15. We'll end here this morning. Another one of Malachi's questions. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? That, by the way, is another biblical definition of marriage. 
The two made one, one flesh. But notice what Malachi adds. With a portion of the Spirit in their union. And so now we see that marriage is not just a husband and wife. It's a husband and wife bound together by the Spirit of Almighty God. See, that'll under, that'll, that will raise our thinking as we're considering what marriage really is. It's not just a man and wife coming together. It's a man and wife coming together and their bond is the very Spirit of Almighty God, a portion of God's Spirit in their union so that Jesus would say, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So then marriage becomes not just a one-to-one union, but it's a three-in-one union. The very triune God demonstrated in this beautiful covenant of marriage. And Christ, in His death and resurrection, was displaying for us the cost of keeping the covenant. So that Paul could write in Ephesians 5, Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Men of God, hear this this morning. This is our high calling. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That's the cross that we're called to take up. For what purpose? That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What does it look like for us to uphold and guard the covenant of marriage that God has given to us, church? First of all, husbands must love their wives in a sacrificial and sanctifying manner. But not just for husbands, wives. If you look back to Ephesians 5, 22-24, we were reminded wives must respect their husbands in a submissive and supportive manner. I know that word submissive is an ugly word in our culture, but if you would understand it biblically, you would understand it's one of the most beautiful words in the Scripture because it describes our obedience to Christ. It's even used to describe Christ's obedience to the Father. It's not an ugly word. It's a beautiful word if we would understand it rightly. But not just husbands and wives. Then the product, he says in Malachi 2, what's God going after in this covenant of marriage? What's he seeking in the upholding of that covenant that goes all the way back to creation? He's wanting godly offspring. And so children, Ephesians 6, must obey their parents in a sincere and what I would call a, a second seat manner. I told you I was going to get back to it. Church, one of the greatest problems that we have in the current moment is child-centered parenting and child-centered homes. Understand, mothers and fathers in this room, the greatest gift that you can give to your children is not the newest technology that's coming out at Christmas time. The greatest gift that you can give to your children is a godly covenant marriage. If you've got this out of whack, I want to encourage you to get it back in whack. 
You're going to need Christ to do this. But understand, the greatest thing that you can give to your children is prioritizing your marriage over your kids. Now, I know we hear this all the time, especially in the church. Well, my kids come first. That's the problem, folks. It's the problem in the home today. We have set our kids in a place of idolatry when we do that. And when our kids come first in the home, understand very clearly we are putting them in a place of destruction. Because what we do with idols, when they don't measure up to our expectations and they never can, is we destroy them. Please hear me this morning. Don't allow your kids to be first in the home for their good. Parents must, children must obey their parents in a sincere and second seat kind of manner. And then our calling parents, Ephesians 6, 4. Parents must disciple their children in a soft-hearted and scriptural manner. This is our primary calling. Mothers and fathers, your primary calling in the lives of your children is not to make them happy, not to get them a good education, not to give them all the things that you never had, not to live your life through their successes. Your primary calling as a mother and as a father is to disciple your children, to raise them in the nurture and instruction of Almighty God. He has given us the manual. And our job is to teach them His ways. That they might walk in His truth. That they might have undivided hearts that fear the Lord rightly and live their lives for His glory. This is the mission He's given us. And it all happens within the context of the marriage covenant that God instituted at creation for our good and for His glory. Let's pray together. Father, there is, without a doubt, a heaviness to what we've talked about today. A needful heaviness because we look around and we see the carnage Broken homes all around us. Your covenant being broken right and left. And not just outside the church. But within the church. And God we cry out to you. That you would once again remind us. Of our absolute and total need for Christ. That you would help us to see our brokenness. And that your solution for us was not a call for us to do better or try harder. But to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And scorned its shame. And is seated now at the right hand of God interceding for us. Praying for our marriages. Praying for our parenting. Reminding us of that which is good and right and true. And Father, you know above all things 
that there is nothing that can redeem what we have so radically broken as the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Father. We pray that we would even this day abandon our pursuits of of self-salvation projects, try harder and do better, that we would lay those down at the foot of the cross and look to our Savior who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And then in loving devotion and obedience to Him, that we would afresh and anew take up this covenant and live it out to your glory. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.